Please rise for the reading of God's word from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. Hear now God's word. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. The claim of this letter to the Colossians and the specific text that we just read is that Christ has the preeminence in all things. The foundation for this claim is not only were all things created through him, but that they were created for him. This is a universal claim. The letter to the Hebrews says that Christ, quote, upholds All things by the word of his power. And the Gospel of John opens with this assertion. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. It's God's intention that the cosmos should serve the glory of Christ. The universe is the arena in which Christ is demonstrated. And his glory. It is the place in which the purposes of Christ are worked out. Now I'm back in the pulpit this Sunday to warn you not to be cheated by Mr. Charles Darwin and his followers, the Neo-Darwinians. Neither he nor his followers believe a single word of what we just read from the Bible. This is a foundational difference between Christians and unbelievers, though many Christians have tried to synthesize Darwinian ideas into the Christian faith. Darwinians have radically different presuppositions or starting assumptions and ideas regarding where we came from and where we're going. But not just that, they also believe that human beings are of an altogether different nature than the Christian view of man. Veiled in pseudoscience, Darwinism seeks to cheat you and the rest of the world, and especially your children. The consequences of Darwinian philosophy and ideas have been, to, been, have been and continue to be devastating to the world. Darwin presented the antithesis or the opposite of a biblical philosophy and thus an ocean of cascading and expanding influences have provided justification for any number of horrors in the fields of sociology, psychology, medicine, economics, education, ethics, and much more. Not the least of which has been the justification for eugenics, abortion, racism, and genocide. So, for example, the historian Richard Weikart, in his book, From Darwin to Hitler, 
maintains this, quote, no matter how crooked the road was from Darwin to Hitler, clearly Darwinianism and eugenics smoothed the path for Nazi ideology and especially for the Nazis. In a subsequent book titled Hitler's Ethic, The Nazi Pursuit of Evolutionary Progress, Weikart argues that Darwin's, quote, evolutionary ethics drove Hitler to engage in behavior that the rest of us consider abominable. This same Darwinian philosophy also provides the underlying and unifying assumptions of our culture. His ideas permeate virtually every school, university, and most media outlets, some of our favorite ones. Mankind has been reduced to a materialistic product of a mindless, mechanical process that is allegedly progressing towards something better, though we don't know what and we don't know why. The irony of Darwinian philosophy is that Darwin himself was not a professional philosopher, neither were Sigmund Freud or Karl Marx, who we'll be looking at. Nevertheless, we all do philosophy, whether we realize it or not, and mankind is eager to believe anything that will offer an alternative to God. You see, if the Bible is true, and by the way, Darwin expressly hated this about Christianity, then these Bible statements are also true. And I'm just giving two samples here from Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 9.27 and as it is appointed for men once to die, and after that, the judgment. You'll recall, I quoted this last week, Darwin, uh, Darwin's concerned observation when he said this, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished, and this is a damnable doctrine. You see, mankind is highly motivated to find an alternative explanation for the universe and for themselves. Now, I know that Darwinian biology has been largely debunked by many, including many in the scientific world, and many unbelievers. By the way, I highly recommend Tom Wolfe's book, The Kingdom of Speech, if you want to have a short little read that uh, really takes apart Darwin. But this, this idea, uh, these, these original ideas from Darwin and we'll see with Freud and Marx have often been watered down, popularized, even to the point that maybe these men themselves might not might want to put some distance between themselves and how it has now played out. But once it's been put out there and become popularized, they, it has now permeated our society and institutions so that even the vocabulary is part of our common conversation. Even words like evolution, survival of the fittest, natural selection, and much more, which continue to impact how we and others see the world. 
Darwinism is our cultural perspective. And we should note that Darwin wasn't the first to put, put forth the notion of evolution, but what he did provide was an alternative explanation of how it worked or how he thought it might work is a better way to say that. His most important and influential idea was that he removed God from the picture altogether and gave us natural selection as God's replacement. Given enough time and trial and error, we can have everything you now see. That's his thesis. But be careful what you ask for. The late Harvard professor Stephen Jay Gould, one of the most eminent evolutionary biologists of the last century, noted that evolutionists have concluded that humans are, quote, pitiful latecomers in the last microsecond of our planetary year. Which is another way of saying if we look at all the time that's gone before, we're just an afterthought, just a blip on the screen. Gould also wrote, quote, no scientific revolution can match Darwin's discovery in degree of upset to our previous comforts and certainties. Evolution, he said, substituted a naturalistic explanation of cold comfort for our former conviction that a benevolent deity fashioned us directly in his own image to have dominion over the entire earth and all other creatures. Gould continued that humans are, quote, a tiny and accidental evolutionary twig, a little mammalian afterthought with a curious evolutionary invention called the human brain. Gould has made it clear elsewhere that Darwinism demands atheism, saying this, Although organisms may be well-designed and ecosystems harmonious, these broader features of life arise only as consequences of the unconscious struggles of individual organisms for personal reproductive success and not as direct results of any natural principle operating overtly for such, quote, higher goods by taking... And then he says, by taking the Darwinian cold bath and staring, a, uh, st- uh, and staring a factual reality in the face, we can finally abandon the cardinal false hope of the ages. That factual nature can specify the meaning of our life by validating our inherent superiority or by proving that evolution exists to generate us as the summit of life's purpose. In other words, give, give all those thoughts up. This doesn't mean anything, folks. If Darwin is right, then you're a big accident waiting to disappear and be replaced by other big accidents. You see the stark contrast with biblical philosophy? made in the image of God, of eternal value and worth, objects of God's love and purpose, or matter in motion. And when the motion stops, you're just finished. 
Today, there are many challenges to the theory of evolution and, as such, form a compelling case against particularly Darwinian evolution. In short, they indicate that evolution could not have taken place, while the fossil record shows that evolution did not take place. The incredible thing is that otherwise rational scientists continue to cling to the concept of evolution, modifying it in any way they can to get around the proofs against it, regardless of the destructive moral and social effects that evolutionary theory has on society. You see, presuppositions are the last thing to go. Those are our beliefs. Now, it's not like you've got, well, you have the rational scientist over here and the religious people and faith over here. There is every bit as much faith over here as there is over here. And there's evidence to be considered, and in both cases, all the evidence is to be interpreted. As geneticist Michael Denton says in his book, Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, quote, today it is perhaps the Darwinian view of nature more than any other that is responsible for the agnostic and skeptical outlook of the 20th century. But why has the theory become so much more important than the evidence necessary to sustain it? The answer is because of what the alternative involves. If the biblical account of creation is true, then there will be a day of judgment for God the Creator has said that, quote, He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man, uh, the man whom He has ordained, Jesus Christ. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Gould argues that Darwin's theory is inherently anti-plan, anti-purpose, anti-meaning. In other words, it is pure philosophical materialism. And I have to say about Gould, I really appreciate his honesty here. Also, he said that Darwin himself knew this and meant for it to be so. And now by materialism, we don't mean the drive to possess more and more material things. That's a different kind of materialism. We say somebody's materialistic, they just want stuff. But rather, we're talking here about the philosophical belief that matter is all that matters. Matter is all that there is. And in this belief system, matter, left to itself, produced all things, including the human brain... And this brain then invented the idea of the supernatural, of God, of eternal life, and so forth. Why is it true, as Gould also points out, that even among non-Christians who believe in evolution, the vast majority of them don't wish to face the utter planlessness of Darwin's theory? because they would then no longer be able to console themselves with a feeling that there is some sort of plan or purpose in their existence. He, of course, starts from the proposition that evolution is true. He knows the real message of Darwin to be, quote, there's nothing else going on out there, just organisms struggling to pass their genes on to the next generation, and that's it. Again, he doesn't say why these genes want to do that. I've never heard an explanation of that, why a gene would care 
about passing on its genes to something else is just another fiat assertion. As evidence for this widespread desire to see purpose and plan in the planlessness of evolution, Professor Gould points to the overwhelming tendency among evolution believers of all levels of education to see the message of Darwin as progress. And thus we have progressives. What are we progressing to? You see, this is their eschatology. There's got to be something out there, some future. Where are we headed and why? And so evolution is usually illustrated as a ladder of progress or similar. And by the way, uh, even in one of Gould's, on one of Gould's book covers, uh, he, didn't, he didn't like the fact that whatever the cover was indicated that because he doesn't think that. He doesn't think we're, that progress is not an issue here because that would in, imply purpose and a plan. But consider this, if the evolutionary scenario is true, let's just assume for the sake of argument that it's true, then man's arrival on the scene has come only at the end of an unspeakably long chain of random events. For example, it would have taken 99.999% of the history of the universe to get to man. After life initially appears, two-thirds of its history on earth doesn't get past bacteria, and for half of the remainder, it stays at the one-cell stage. In order to escape the obvious, which is that such an evolutionary universe, in such an evolutionary universe, man has no possible significance and just happened to come along, our culture, uh, Gould argues, has had to view these vast ages as some sort of preparation period for the eventual appearance of man. In this scheme, not only do black lives not matter, no lives matter. However, there's no hint of this popular mythology of evolution as progress in Darwin's grand idea. Variations, he says, happen only by chance. Those organisms which happen by chance to suit their local environment more effectively and thus have a better chance to pass on their genes to the next generation are favored by natural selection, and that's all. In the theory, the giraffe that develops a longer neck is not a better giraffe. It's just a giraffe with a longer neck. Given a certain change in the environment, that long neck can just as easily become a disadvantage. There is something, there is therefore nothing inevitable about the appearance of man or intelligent, self-aware beings for that matter. Just an interesting note, Peter Bowler, writing in Nature Journal uh, in 1991, said that, quote, many now accept that Darwin's analogy between artificial and natural selection was a product of hindsight. So where did the idea come from? 
Just prior to his famous so-called insight, Darwin spent months studying the economic theories of Adam Smith. In Smith's free market view, the struggle of individuals competing for personal gain in an unfettered marketplace by eliminating inefficient participants, for instance, competition, is supposed to give, give an ordered, efficient economy. Those of you familiar with Adam Smith will under, remember the phrase, uh, the invisible guiding hand. So that's what Adam Smith said. That it's, it's, He said it's as if, the way the economy works, it's as if there was this invisible hand directing everything. And, quote, the benefits come as an incidental side effect of this selfish struggle. Darwin then applied that to nature. The apparent design and order in nature, notice the word apparent, is an incidental side effect of the selfish struggle to leave more offspring. Again, nobody that I've seen has attempted to answer why the gene is so selfish and why it struggles at all, much less to produce offspring. Why did Darwin wait 20 years before publishing his book after he finished writing it? It wasn't because of his modesty, another common myth which Gould debunks. So it is clear that he was afraid to reveal something. Was it his belief in evolution itself? I don't think so because evolution was already a common idea in Darwin's day. It was because of the bombshell he knew that laid behind his theory, namely the radical materialism. He knew as a young man that he had, quote, the key to one of the great reforming ideas of history and systematically went out to reformulate every discipline from psychology to history. Remember, ideas have consequences. We're dealing with false philosophies and their impact. To explain apparent design... Without a designer, that was the key to Darwin's theory, not the idea of evolution itself. Darwin knew that his notion, being utter planlessness, could not possibly involve any sort of per-positive uh, uh, progress. And per-positive just means purpose, a positive purpose, uh, a goal, if you will which is the romanticized notion of evolution held by so many of its believers today. In fact, it is likely that this is why he didn't even use the word evolution until his last book in 1881 when he gave in to the by then popular term applied to his concept. The common meaning of evolution at that time implied uh, progress. But in a letter to the paleontologist Hyatt, Darwin wrote this, I cannot avoid the conclusion that no inherent tendency to progressive development exists. His early private notebooks show that his materialism was well established. For instance, in one of them, he addresses himself as, quote, oh, you materialist, and says, quote, why is thought being a secretion of the brain more wonderful than gravity as a property of matter. He clearly already believed that the idea of a separate realm of the spirit was nonsense, as is further shown when he warns himself not to reveal his beliefs as follows, quote, 
to avoid saying how far I believe in materialism, say only, these are notes to himself, say only that emotions, instincts, degrees of talent which are hereditary are so because the brain of child resembles parent stock. In 1837, when Darwin was only 28 years old, he wrote in a private notebook responding to Plato's belief that ideas, the ideas of our imagination arise from pre-existence of the soul. And he wrote in, in, the, in the margins, quote, read monkeys for pre-existence. Now, some implications. Designed by an intelligent creator... And the effects of randomness are diametrically opposed. They are opposites, two ends of, di- of a dichotomy separated by a great chasm. So you're Christians. I'm a Christian. We need to know where we stand, and we need to know where those philosophies of the world that would challenge us and challenge the world stand, and that's why we're taking the time to do this. The fact is that evolutionary theory weakened one of the most intuitively compelling arguments for the existence of God, that is, the argument from design. Theists, going back at least as far as Thomas Aquinas, had argued that the intricate design found in organisms was evidence of a designer, namely God, and neither Hume nor anyone else has been able to think of a better explanation and design, uh, and the design argument retained much of its force. But Darwin challenged all this. His theory of natural selection proved, uh, provided a naturalistic account of the origin of species. Where did all this come from? An explanation for design without a designer. Professor Nigel Williams was even more blunt, writing that Darwin, quote, destroyed the strongest evidence left in the 19th century for the existence of a deity. Professor Franco uh, Ayala explained in detail why Darwinism ruled out theism, namely that it negated the need for an intelligent creator because, quote, Darwin's greatest contribution to science is that he led the way to prove that natural law can create all that is real and no need exists for an intelligent creator because organisms could now be explained the result of natural processes without recourse to an intelligent designer. The Darwinian revolution resulted in a major rethinking of the nature of humans and human institutions. Oxford University professor of the history of science, I.B. Cohen, concluded that, quote, the Darwinian revolution was probably the most significant revolution that has ever occurred in the sciences because its effects and influences were significant in many different areas of thought and belief. The consequences of this revolution was a systematic rethinking of the nature of the world, of man, and of human institutions. This event, a declaration of revolution in a formal scientific publication, appears to be without parallel in the history of science. What does that have to do with anything? It has, it has to do with everything. It has to do with all the political turmoil we're having right now. 
What is the purpose of our institutions? Is it to shape this process, this progress? Do we need progressives to really help do it for us because we're too stupid to do it ourselves? We want to, we got to speed this process up. We can do that, you know, by managing, by educating, by controlling. Social Darwinism is our lives. It's all around us all the time. Ernst Mayer concluded that Darwin, quote, caused a greater upheaval in man's thinking than any other scientific advance since the rebirth of science in the Renaissance. In the minds of many, if not most Darwinists, Darwinist, the Darwinian revolution has resulted in explaining away the task that once required a creator and has replaced him by blind, unintelligent, and amoral natural laws. This is because Darwin's theory of natural selection accounts again for the design of organisms and for their wondrous diversity as the result of a natural process, the gradual accumulation of spontaneously arisen variations or mutations sorted out by natural selection. Alea concluded, noting that mutation and selection have jointly driven the marvelous process of evolution that starting from microscopic organisms has yielded orchids, birds, and humans. The theory of evolution conveys chance and necessity, randomness and determinism. This was Darwin's fundamental discovery, and there is a process that is, that, that there is a process that is creative, although not conscious. And I could not help but think of G.K. Chesterton's mocking this gradual explanation of a miracle. And by the way, I, I, the, the other book that I think is maybe the best, one of the, my favorite and best refutations of evolution is Chesterton's Everlasting Man. Uh, that's the book C.S. Lewis said was very instrumental in his own conversion. Here's what he says in that opening chapter. Nobody could imagine how nothing could turn into something. Nobody can get an inch nearer to it by explaining how something could turn into something else. But this notion of something smooth and slow like the ascent of a slope is a great part of the illusion. It is an illogicality as well as an illusion for slowness has really nothing to do with the question. An event is not any more intrinsically intelligible or unintelligible because of the pace at which it moves. For a man who does not believe in a miracle, a slow miracle would be just as incredible as a swift one. The Greek, which have, may have turned sailors to swine with a stroke of a wand, but to see a naval gentleman of our acquaintance looking a little more like a pig every day till he ended with four trotters and a curly tail would not be any more soothing. It might be rather more creepy and uncanny. The medieval wizard may have flown through the air from the top of a tower, but to see an old gentleman walking through the air in a leisurely and lounging manner would still seem to call for some explanation. Yet there runs through all the rationalistic treatment of history this curious and confused idea that difficulty is avoided or even mystery eliminated by dwelling on mere delay or on something 
dilatory in the process of things. The question here is the false atmosphere of uh, of facility and ease given by the mere suggestion of going slow, the sort of comfort that might be given to a nervous old woman traveling for the first time in a motor car. The inculcation of the Darwinian philosophy has been slow, sometimes subtle, but always purposeful. Darwin himself knew that his evolutionary theory not only supported atheism, but that atheism was a logical result of his theory. Although Darwin personally discouraged arguments against religion because they supposedly had little effect on the public, he nevertheless indirectly supported their use of his theory to propagate atheism. An example, in 1880, Darwin wrote a letter to atheist Edward Aveling, uh, and he said, quote, It appears to me, whether rightly or wrongly, that direct arguments against Christianity and theism produce hardly any effect on the public. So if you go after Christianity publicly and directly, that isn't going to work. We need a better strategy. Darwin added that instead of arguing directly against Christianity, the task of converting people to atheism is best promoted by the gradual illumination of men's minds which follow from the advance of science or evolution. Uh, And we would note that public schools and universities have done an excellent job at this. University of Chicago professor Jerry Coyne wrote that, quote, there exists religious, there does exist religious scientists and Darwinian churchgoers, but this does not mean that faith and science are compatible, and he uses the word science here, we should just say evolutionary science, except in the trivial sense that both attitudes can be simultaneously embraced by a single human mind. It's like saying that marriage and adultery are compatible because some married people are adulterers. He is, uh, so, so unbelievers, I do think, sometimes understand what's going on here better than a lot of Christians do. The implications of this worldview should be clear. In an essay based on the Phi Beta Kappa oration given at Harvard University, Nobel laureate Professor Stephen Wingberg wrote this. The worldview of science is rather chilling. Not only do we find not find any point to life laid out for us in nature, no objective basis for our moral principles, no correspondence between what we think is the moral law and the laws of nature, the emotions that we most treasure, our love for our wives and husbands and children are made possible by chemical processes in our brains that are what they are as a result of natural selection acting on chance mutations over millions of years. And yet we must not sink into nihilism or stifle our emotions. I don't know why. He continues, at our best, we live on a knife edge between wishful thinking on the one hand and on the other, despair. Living without God isn't easy, he says, but its very difficulty offers one other consolation, that there is a certain honor 
or perhaps just a grim satisfaction in facing up to our condition without despair and without wishful thinking, with good humor, but without God. The notorious serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, took a different approach. In an interview he had prior to his death, he said, quote, If a person doesn't think there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought about it anyway. I always believed the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from the slime. When we died, you know, that was it. There's nothing. In 1929, Professor Watson wrote that evolution, quote, is accepted by zoologists not because it has been observed to occur or is supported by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. William B. Provine made this very clear, and he said, when Darwin deduced the theory of natural selection to explain the adaptations in which he had previously seen the handiwork of God, he knew that he was committing cultural murder. So confident are Darwinists that evolution has destroyed theism that some scientists predict theistic religion will eventually die out as knowledge of evolution spreads. That's their goal, the conversion of the world. University of Pennsylvania professor Anthony Wallace wrote this, 1966, quote, religion under the assault of evolution has been increasingly restricted in its influence, and he predicts that the evolutionary future of religion is extinction. Belief in supernatural beings and in supernatural forces that affect nature without obeying nature's laws will erode and become only an interesting historical memory. To be sure this event is not likely to occur in the next generation, The process will likely take several hundred years, but as a cultural trait, belief in supernatural powers is doomed to die out all over the world as a result of the increasing adequacy and diffusion of scientific knowledge. The process is inevitable. Now, finally, let's come full circle. Where did the world come from? Where did you come from? Why do you and the world exist? Where are you and the world going? Because your answers to these questions must be clear and unequivocal. We hear a lot these days about who does or doesn't believe in science. Let me be clear. I believe in science, if you mean by that the study of God's creation and that this kind of study has often provided real knowledge and benefits to mankind. But if by belief in science you mean an acceptance of a meaningless universe and the ultimate authority of a very fallible scientist, then no, I refuse to bow my knee. I will instead remember the words of Joshua. 
And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, in this case we would say Darwin, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve Jehovah. Here's what I believe when it comes to ultimate authority. Here's my philosophy of origins and meaning. And I come back to where we started today. Colossians 1. He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you today and we acknowledge that you are God, our creator, our heavenly father. We are your creatures and great, and thankfully, because of the redemptive work of Christ, we are also your children. Father, we know that there is much in this world that seeks to assault you, assault the truth, and assault us. We are thankful that Christ has subdued all his enemies and made them his footstool that he has subdued all his and our enemies. Help us, Lord, today to be clear and to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Help us to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to do so without embarrassment or shame. For whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Bless us now as we conclude in Jesus' name. Amen. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, we read, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Henry Morris, who's written a good bit on creationism, wrote this some years ago. He said, The two basic entities, energy and matter, are apparently completely distinct in nature and yet are fully equivalent to each other in essence. The factor that relates the one to the other is the square of the velocity of light. Herein, here again... He who is the light of the world is suggested. It is Jesus Christ who upholds all things by the word of his power. He who created all things is also the one by whom all things consist or hold together. Hebrews 1.3, upholding all things by the word of his power. Matter comes from the energy of his word. Then God said, let there be light and there was light light. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We often describe something by telling what it's made of, but this does not tell us what it is. You're made of water and various other particles, but that's not what you are. You're made in the image of God, and you receive your being from him. The alphabet gets its meaning from its creator. This enables it to communicate information. Likewise, the DNA code derives its meaning from its creator, God. Matter can no more communicate a message or purpose than can the random marks on a page. The life of the universe is mediated through God the Son. Our mechanistic view of the universe blinds us to this fact. Nothing in creation has an iota of independence from Jesus Christ. Nothing lies outside the sovereign providence of God. There is no area of contingency. There is no area of neutrality. There is nothing outside the eternal decree of God or the law of God. This is the biblical doctrine of creation. If Christ is preeminent in creation, if he created the universe, if he sustains the universe, if the universe exists for him, then nothing, not one single thing, falls outside of his power, including your salvation. If he cannot save you, if he does not save you, then nothing else can save you because he is the all-sufficient Savior. Blessed are you, O Father, to you belong all praise and glory, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You have guided us all the years of our lives, supplied all our needs, quenched all our thirst, healed all our wounds, and heard all our prayers. We are your people, and we desire to serve you forever. We are delighted to claim your name and worship and adore you. Bless this Lord's Day, we pray. May we learn how to delight and rest in you. Bless our fellowship and our our communion and community with one another. Blessed are you, O Father, whom we serve in your Son, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory forevermore. Amen. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.